Welcome to Shook Me the Mooney, episode 86. And we got a great episode, I think, lined up for you. Um, you know, last week, if you listen to the intro, I talked about how, you know, for the last couple of months, I've been wanting to do an appreciation of Ivan Reitman, the director of such films as Ghostbusters, Meatballs, Stripes. Um, but I wanted to see the the final, you know, Ghostbusters Afterlife um, before I did so. And I finally got to see it um, week before last. And also I wanted to really like prepare for the episode. And, you know, due to my schedule, I wasn't really like afforded to. And, you know, on this show, we talked about a lot, you know, it also was kind of a bit of a cruel running gag um, brought on to us by, you know, fate that, you know, every, it seemed like every other episode we were, you know, um, paying our respects to somebody that passed um, recently. And, you know, we always talk about, you know, trying to give people flowers while they're here. And that's the whole point of this, um, you know, our appreciation series. So, Unfortunately, over the weekend, uh, Ivan Reitman passed away in his sleep at the age of 75. So this appreciating Ivan Reitman segment has turned into a remembering Ivan Reitman. But, you know, in remembering him, we're going to appreciate him. And, you know, as I said, you know, you could go back to last week. We've been trying to do this um, for a while. Uh, unfortunately, Krufi had it that he um, passed away over the weekend. And, you know, it's probably like a, a, a blessing in disguise that we didn't do it because, you know, imagine if we had done it, you know, last episode or the episode before and, you know, promoting the episode would have coincided, you know, with news of him passing and it would just been in poor taste to kind of like... Um, for both things to like coincidentally happen at the same time, but unfortunately he passed away. Uh, but I was able to, you know, I was actually started writing the notes and then he passed as I was writing, you know, as I was completing my notes. So I was able to, you know, uh, finish the notes and, you know, construct a segment and you hear that, uh, immediately after this intro but of course we're also going to cover um euphoria season two episode six uh and what episode it was a lot happened in it um another thing i have like a shit ton of notes on so i want to hit all kinds of different subjects and give my thoughts on you know that excellent show um hopefully you guys are listening to this before the next episode which comes out uh, probably the Sunday after this episode is um, out for your listening pleasure. But let's get into it. Episode 86. So remembering Ivan Reitman, uh, this was essentially appreciating Ivan Reitman has become remembering Ivan Reitman. 
uh, unfortunately, as he passed over, oh, he passed away over this last weekend. Um, and it's crazy because you know some of the mov- I, I knew him from a lot of the movies that I've seen that he's directed, a lot of the movies I've seen that he's produced, and you know, it kind of comes back to you and doing this research, like, oh my God, he actually did a lot more stuff that, um, you know, was deeply treasured, you know, that I love, that I totally forgot he was even involved with in any capacity. And it's crazy because it actually spans um, just about four decades um, up until, actually, um five decades up until his recent death because um, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which came out this past November, directed by his son, Jason, um, essentially was the final thing he was involved with, uh, possibly, uh, which we'll discuss uh, later on in this. But, you know, just out of the gate, let's talk about Ivan Reitman, a person, and how he came to be uh one of you know uh how he came to be a hollowed um filmmaker uh first of all he was born in hungary uh his mother actually survived the holocaust and she was actually interned in um auschwitz the concentration camp during um you know that cruel event which was the um holocaust but he actually moved to Toronto when he was four years old. So he grew up in Toronto. Um, we always talk about how all these greats are, you know, Canadians, John Candy, um, Rick Moranis, Norm MacDonald, uh, all these different people. You find out you, that they actually come from Canada. And he worked at city tv which is a channel up in toronto i'm actually a little familiar with it because i actually used to travel to toronto um during my teenage years uh for the caravana um festival that takes part you know takes place in the summer so usually before we went out to you know all the different like fets and you know events you know you'd be in a hotel room and you'd essentially just be watching tv and uh, you know i pop on city tv and it's you know a regular like channel uh you know like your your regular regular old like uh local tv channel so i'd pop that on and you know before we went out and after we came back to the hotel and when he worked for city tv he actually met dan Aykroyd. he was working on there as like i think a tv presenter um, and I formed their, you know, relationship as, you know, partners in filmmaking. But his first foray into filmmaking was, uh, or actually making films, is one of my favorite comedies, top 10 all time, which is Animal House. You know, such a great movie. I love to watch it every time it's on. Very quotable. Uh, John Belushi was awesome in it. Um, I actually used to rock a shirt that had the poster for Animal House when I was in college. And Animal House kind of, like, uh, inspired a lot of the stuff, you know, I did in college. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, up until the, um, you know, 
Dean Warmer, um, fat, stupid, fat and stupid is no way to live. Uh, part of it, unfortunately. Oh yeah, but you know, great movie. He was a producer on it. There's a famous photo of the entire cast and crew, uh, in front of the you know frat house and Ivan Reitman right there front and center. Then he produced Meatballs, which is which starred um Bill um which starred Bill Murray, who obviously we know became a consistent collaborator of his. Um, I actually haven't seen the movie. Um, I actually seen like this the, you know the shitty sequels to it, but I've not seen the original movie yet. Uh, shame on me for that. But I've heard great things about it. I heard it's a great comedy. But as we go into the 1980s, this is where a lot of his works um, that I'm familiar with start to come about. You got Stripes, which is awesome. It's the first time I think um, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis were paired up on screen um, where they played, you know, two guys who joined the army. And it just talks about, you know, it, it just goes through the whole like motions of, you know, being in the... Um, you know, being in the military, you know, to a comedic effect. Um, John Candy, of course, is in a movie who's, you know, really special and, and another person who's no longer with us that, you know, is just such a, a, um, a constant part of our childhood and, you know, our, our lives and being featured in all of these great movies. And then, of course... The seminal favorite, Ghostbusters, 1984, uh, classic movie, you know, went through a lot of different stages where, um, you know, they had different ideas of, you know, as far as story, how it was going to go. And it eventually, you know, fell on the story of where, like, you know, regular average Joes uh started to deal with like the paranormal in you know a city that's you know consistently been abnormal which is here in new york city you know which is interesting because i always uh i was discussing with somebody at work the other day how like new york is you know i understand why new york is like the setting for movies like a ghostbusters like a man in black um all of these movies where weird stuff would just happen because if you just ride the subway or you go into a train station in manhattan or walk around in manhattan it's like you know these you know if an alien uh invasion happened and they took forms of human beings like we'd be so oblivious to it because we're so conditioned as new yorkers to just ignore people uh, that we wouldn't even see the signs coming. So uh, it's it, I, I think of it as comedic genius that they thought of Ghostbusters, um, just the concept of it and the execution of it, which is now just such a beloved movie and a beloved franchise in general. Uh, we have Twins, which is a great comedy. I saw, I've actually watched the whole movie for the first time like a few years ago. I love Danny DeVito, love Arnold Schwarzenegger. So actually, I finally got to, to see what people love about it. And it's such a great movie, such a great comedy, you know. Um, you know, two people, two twins separated at birth. 
uh one's essentially like the perfection of uh like the perfect human being and then the other one is like Danny DeVito who's you know short uh chubby and really abrasive and it just plays out masterfully uh throughout the movie and you know all of the hype that I heard about it, you know, I it was actually like confirmed when I when I watched it. Uh, it's such a lovely movie. Ghostbusters two came out in nineteen eighty nine. Um, it actually didn't do as well as the first movie because you know if you look back on it, nineteen eighty nine, like a lot of movies came out that year. Um, some say it was the year. Um of the blockbuster because it had some so many great movies coming out at once um which before that it never really um that never really happened before you know because you had batman you had uh indiana jones and the last crusade which is another one of my all-time favorite movies um ghostbusters 2 uh license to kill didn't you know that was the james wan movie that came out that you know, um, actually caused one of the biggest uh, pauses in the James Bond franchise because it came out during that same summer and just like Ghostbusters 2, it didn't do well. So it put into question whether or not James Bond would be viable going forward. Obviously, uh, a few years later, GoldenEye came, came out and you know, it's still been rolling on ever, ever since, you know, up until recently with No Time to Die. Um, so all of these movies came out at, at once and some were obviously more successful than others. And unfortunately, the byproduct of, you know, so many great movies coming out at the same time and, you know, the box office not being reflective of them being great movies a lot of these movies in retrospect have been, you know, um, categorized as, you know, subpar or um, not as good as its predecessors or its contemporaries. And I think Ghostbusters 2 is the same thing. Like a lot of people dislike Ghostbusters 2. And I was actually more fond of Ghostbusters 2 personally because I saw it more consistently than the original um and both I, I i you know today i still enjoy watching uh both of those movies um had such a great song with my you know one of my favorite singers bobby brown had the you know off on our own now and the movie itself was also really like reflective of the time and me and mike we always talk about how we love New York centric movies, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, both of those very, very um, New York centric and featured a lot of, you know, the landmarks that we see, but it's also, uh, it, it, it also uses New York City as a character and the people of New York as characters because, you know, in very much real life, you know, 1984, you know, these people, you know, these, these four men save New York City and possibly the world from, you know, paranormal activity. And it's basically forgotten within five years. And if we all remember, you know, 9-11 and the unity of New York City, 
and all of this like you know yeah like we're new york together and we're we love each other and blah 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 and all of that basically like lasted um for only like a couple of months so it's interesting that 12 years before that you know in a movie essentially this big event happens in new york and everybody forgets about it within five years and then fast forward from 1989 to 2001 you know this very real life and tragic event happens and it brings unity to the city and the city thinks you know maybe we don't have to be all tough and you know rude to each other and you know start you know smiling at each other and stuff like that and it literally lasted for all of like a few months so uh art definitely uh reflected life in that instance so that's why you know i i have a you know very particular take and interest in ghostbusters too uh then he did you know one of the i think it was actually like yeah it was like the second comedy uh obviously twins was the first that um Arnold Schwarzenegger did but different from twins is that kindergarten cop was like an action comedy so it was the first time you got to see Arnold Schwarzenegger be Arnold Schwarzenegger but also you know being used to comedic effect and you know uh what if the Terminator had to teach a kindergarten class and the one thing you will find in Ivan Reitman's work is just very out of the box ideas like things you wouldn't think of being executed to comedic effect and executed very brilliant brilliantly so next you had dave which was essentially a modern version of the you know timeless tale of the prince and the pauper where um, a person who looks like the president of the United States actually fills in for the president of the United States after he dies uh, having a stroke during having sex. Um, and he's played by Kevin Klein, who's who was great in the 90s. Obviously, we talked about him and, you know, Wild Wild West. And, um, you know, the movie reunited him with Sigourney Weaver. And it was again like a, a a situation where he thought outside of the box like what if like we did prince and a pauper you know but it's the president and pauper we take a presidential impersonator turn him into the president us as a nation wouldn't be none the wiser and obviously comedy ensues and the movie also reunited him with sigourney weaver who played um dana in both of the ghostbuster films and after that he did Junior in 1994, which is actually the first Ivan Reitman movie I went to the movies to see because I remember seeing this movie at the cinema as a kid. And it was an interesting concept of how, uh, what if a man got pregnant and sound like a broken record here, but outside of the box because the concept, which was what if you, you know, two biologists were able to impregnate a man and outside of the box in that that man is 
Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that one also reunited Danny DeVito, who was in Twins with, you know, his Twins co-star Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, they had the uh, his partner in Kindergarten Cop playing Danny DeVito's ex-wife. They had Emma Thompson, who's phenomenal. And it was a great movie. And it, again, art eventually, uh, art eventually imitated life because I think in about the mid to late 2000s, there was a transgender man who I think became like the first pregnant man because biologically they were assigned at birth, you know, the female gender and later on in life decided to, you know, um, reassign genders and become male and him and his wife decided they wanted to have a baby. And obviously they had to use artificial, um, means to have that done. And I, I believe like his wife was, um, infertile but since he still by you know so had you know the ability to carry children he you know artificially did it and became pregnant so you know outside of the box i'm very like ahead of its time and um obviously in a movie it's kind of like played up for laughs and um it was just interesting uh, when that actually did happen because I believe like they were like a guest on Oprah. The first thing I thought of was the movie Junior and it was, you know, done by the great Ivan Reitman. So those are the movies he directed. Obviously he directed, you know, a few more, but uh, this was essentially like his, the high point of his career with, you know, all of these great movies. And I'm pretty sure like some people, a lot of people who want to become filmmakers would like to make one great film. And he just had this great stretch of films, you know, from the 1980s into the early 1990s. But, you know, obviously, you know, filmmaking isn't just as cut and dry as just, you know, directing movies or, you know, isn't just directing movies, but it's also, you know, you could write you could produce, you could executive produce. So here are some of the films that he produced that are also classics to many, including myself. Beethoven and Beethoven's second, you know, the movie about the St. Bernard that, um, you know, causes a ruckus for this family, but eventually they grow to love him. And those were in 1992 and 1993. Then in 1996, he produced Space Jam, um, you know, which is a classic movie. All of us remember, we love. Um, and it's interesting, kind of like a throwaway line in the movie. Bill Murray, when he shows up to the game, actually has two throwaway lines. You have Danny DeVito, who's voicing um, Swackhammer, who's the main villain of the movie. You know, he's like, I didn't know Dan Aykroyd was in this film, who's also a frequent collaborator of Ivan Reitman. Bill Murray comes onto the court and, you know, um, somebody questions, I can't remember, one of the cartoon characters mentions, you know, questions, how did he get there? And he's like, 
you know, my friend's the producer, you know, and it was kind of like, oh, like, you know, a regular old, like, line, but then you realize Ivan Reitman's the producer, and Ivan Reitman's been, you know, a friend and a collaborator of Bill Murray for years. Um, it's something I didn't pick up on as a kid, something I didn't even pick up on as, like, a teen and a young adult, but now you know, as I'm older and I watch Space Jam, I realize like the end joke, which was, you know, my friend's a producer. Um, so that was how he was able. He also produced Private Parts, which was the Howard Stern biopic. You know, funny ass movie for a biopic. Really seminal, like cult following, cult following type of movie. Um, and then this is interesting. This is where it gets into movies that, you know, came about in my adolescence that you'd think were bygone from the height of Ivan Reitman's career, come to find out that I produce. And the first two are Road Trip and Old School. Um, Road Trip and Old School, both directed by Todd Phillips, who eventually went on to move from comedy to become, you know, um, Oscar-nominated director with his work in The Joker. And Road Trip was a movie that I consistently, you know, I always used to watch um, from the time it came out to this day. I always watch it when it's on TV. It's one of my favorite movies. I was one of my favorite people in the world, Tom Green in it. And obviously the story is always funny. Um, old school is great because it was kind of like Animal House. But what if instead of these guys being in college, these guys being like, you know, in their 30s trying to uh, still act like they're in college. And so, so much so that they decide to start their own quote unquote fraternity. And an interesting story, Breckenmeyer, who was in Road Trip, you know, a lot of people are producers in, in like, name only. And Breckenmeyer, after Ivan's passing, um, talked about how on Road Trip, like, he was really, really, like, involved and left an impression on the cast. And the cast, um, you know, to this day, even in his passing, still, you know, love him nearly and dearly. So it shows how um how much of a of an influence he had on the film and then Euro Trip, which was kind of like an offshoot of road trip i think i believe it was produced also by todd fellows but it was produced by ivan reitman which is something i actually learned in gathering notes for this segment but ivan reitman was not only a filmmaker he also had a family and he had children uh three children two of which went on to do their own work in media. Jason Reitman became, you know, acclaimed director. You know him from such films as Juno and Up in the Air. And then Catherine Reitman. This is interesting, especially for the show, because, you know, we're such big fans of It's Always Sunday in Philadelphia. Um, she had a recurring role on that show as Maureen Ponderosa. And actually, when you see her and you see Ivan Reitman, you could obviously see the resemblance, but um, she's gone on and, and outside of her acting, she's also taken part in a lot of 
um, TV production and film production and writing and all that stuff. So obviously it's a family business. And Ivan Reitman, you know, took part in that because he produced Up in the Air, which was directed by Jason. You know, I I've, I watched the movie when it first came out. Matter of fact, like it was back when I still used to get like Netflix, you know, the in the mail, like the disc version of it, um, starring uh, Anna Kendrick, George Clooney, Vera Farmiga, kind of like a, a dramedy type of movie. But Jason carried on his father's legacy. Obviously, they had uh, Paul Feig directed. Uh, reboot that came out in in 2000 in 2016 which was you know with the all-female cast of um Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon um which was you know to me it was a quality movie but you know if you're like me you were a fan of Ghostbusters it didn't really satisfy like you know that Ghostbusters itch you know, a lot of people attributed it to, you know, um, misogyny, you know, the, of the misogyny of the fan base. A lot of people um, attributed it to, you know, people just not willing to shake their nostalgia and were disinterested. You know, as, uh, like I said, I still find the movie as a quality comedy. I'm a huge fan of Kate McKinnon and um, Melissa McCarthy and Leslie Jones and Kristen Wiig. So I thought the movie was fine in the casting department. It just, like I said, it didn't satisfy, you know, the Ghostbuster fan in me. And, you know, if, if I'm wrong for that, I'm wrong. But that's what it did. So what eventually happened it happened was Jason took up the director reins for a direct sequel to uh, Ghostbusters, they say it's a direct sequel to the original Ghostbusters and it kind of ignores um, the second movie, but I don't really see it as such. It just is a direct sequel to the events of Ghostbusters, but uh, it just doesn't have like a direct link to the second movie, but it doesn't ignore it like totally. Like the second movie, obviously, it seems like it did happen, but it just didn't relate to the events of Afterlife. And Ivan Reitman not only produced that movie, he actually uh, stood in, spoiler alert, for uh, Harold Ramis as Egon Spengler in the movie uh, in ghost form. So unfortunately, that seems to have been his final um film you know in any capacity and you know Ghostbusters Afterlife it, it seemed like a very touching to me it came off as a very touching movie it was very done in in admiration and respect to Harold Ramis and to me done extremely well the one thing I did have a gripe with was the setting because it took the Ghostbusters out of New York and into some like midwestern town and you know, I might be biased being a New Yorker and, you know, we love, you know, seeing New York on film and on this show. But as I said, you know, previously, like New York was a character in the first two films, both as a setting and, you know, the people of New York. 
so that was my one criticism of the movie but i felt like the movie overall was was pretty great in um satisfying um in satisfying fans of the ghostbusters series and the franchise but with most filmmakers obviously everything they wanted to make they weren't able to make so we'll talk about some unrealized projects and one of those projects actually was in the process of being realized and is kind of uh ironically up in the air <laughs> right now uh due to his passing over the past weekend but we'll start off you know with batman essentially he was supposed to he was trying to make a batman movies he was trying to make a batman movie in the 1980s early 1980s before tim burton's batman um and which might sound a little far-fetched but you got to remember that 1980s is closer to superman the movie and it's also much closer to the 1960s Adam West Batman. And that's probably the freshest idea of Batman in pop culture's mind at the time. So making a Batman movie that was a comedy and a little bit campy would have been far more realistic than making one that was serious as the Batman um you know, the first two Batman movies by Tim Burton and then, you know, the uh, Christopher Nolan and this upcoming um, The Batman with Robert Pattinson by Matt Reeves. And that movie had Bill Murray as Batman, probably fresh off of Stripes and um, or in between Stripes and Caddyshack. And it would have had David Niven as Alfred and William, Hold- William Holden as commissioner gordon and david bowie as the joker in this movie and apparently it went through like a bunch of rewrites it got passed on to um peter dante who did gremlins and gremlins 2 and obviously um david nevins and william holden were in poor health at the time and eventually passed away so the movie never came to fruition he also was planning on doing a Wonder Woman, a Wonder Woman movie in the '90s. Um, that eventually he left and it never got made. He was interested in doing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first Harry Potter movie, but eventually that director's job went on to Chris Columbus, who we know from Home Alone, and we also talked about in the. Uh, John Hughes video that we did his other unrealized concept was a sequel to the movie twins which would be called obviously triplets because they would have added a third sibling um that they would you know discover and try to build a relationship with and you know comedy ensues etc 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 and I think virtually since the 90s, the rumored target for that third sibling was always Eddie Murphy. But recently, Eddie Murphy's character was replaced by Tracy Morgan, who is great in his own right. I love Tracy. 
And it was supposed to start filming in January 22, but what's left unclear is whether or not they actually started filming or not. Um, but either way, if it was, you know, slated to start filming, um, Ivan Reitman, who was going to produce, direct, produce and direct it, you know, passed away here now in February. So we don't know whether or not um, he'll be replaced by he whether or not he'll be replaced as director or you know who knows maybe again his son Jason might step in for him or you know they might try to find a new director so as far as it seems it is an unrealized project because you know he won't be here to realize it um, but we don't know if you know somebody's going to step in to um, continue and finish the project so we'll keep on a lookout for that but you know Ivan Reitman I just talked about all his movies and it's just incredible the significance that he's had in all of these films like all of these films are all if not most of these films are movies that I've watched you know numerous times more times than I can remember and the interesting thing is a lot of them when I rewatch them it still feels like the first time I watched them and you know that's that takes a lot of like comedic and um, filmmaking genius especially in comedy because in comedy you know movies are basically you know built on trying to make you laugh and sometimes jokes get old and they get stale but every time I watch these movies the same jokes they they still land with me um but I was so glad that, you know, it's kind of like fate that his last movie would be a movie he got to work on with his son, a movie he got to work on with um, two of his oldest friends and collaborators in Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. And unlike the first two films, as far as I remember, I don't think he had uh cameos jason actually popped up in ghostbusters 2 as the kid that you know talks shit to them during a birthday party so jason was in a ghostbusters film before i think his father was but the fact that you know he was able to not only produce and um see this film being made but he also was able to be a part of it not only be a part of it but able to carry on a role that was a, a role that was played by another one of his friends Harold Ramis and they they did an excellent job with that movie um was it the greatest movie probably not but for what it was trying to accomplish I think it did last thing I'll say is you know thank you Ivan Reitman for you know your influence on uh, comedy on films and on pop culture. Euphoria episode six of season two. You know, going off of episode five, we don't know where we'd ha- we will we didn't know where we would begin at, and it began with Rude making amends for something she did in a previous episode, which was basically um burning a bridge with Ali by 
throwing his, you know, prior drug abuse and his own, you know, physical abuse of his uh, ex-wife and his children into his face um, as he was trying to help Rue, you know, as he's been doing throughout the series as her um, sponsor. And Rue calls and she apologizes. And Rue talks about, you know, someone boiling your life down to one moment and punishing you for it. And she says that's what she did to Ali. And that act coming from her hurt because she knows she hurt him when she uh, didn't mean to. She meant to, but she 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 wanted to, but she didn't mean to. And it's just interesting as she's apologizing and you could tell she was like struggling with it. It's like as if like every word she was saying in like apologizing to him and not apological, it felt like she was swallowing like a rock in between each word. It was like that um, difficult. But, you know, someone boiling your life down to one moment and punishing you for it is something that Ali refused to do. Because as she apologized, he didn't ask questions. He didn't even say anything. He said, you know, I forgive you. Because he didn't want to do the same thing that Rue in her drug addicted state was trying to do. He didn't want to do that to her and, you know, hold that against her. So he instantly forgave her. Because I think in our moment, he realized it was, it was a sincere apology. Then we see Cassie uh, repeatedly trying to kill herself. Um, kind of dark comedy where um, Suze tells uh, Lexi to hide all of the kitchen knives in the bushes so that Cassie can't find them. And eventually Cassie finds like a corkscrew and tries to slit her wrist with it um, to which she was like unsuccessful. And it's an interesting thing because, like, Cassie is, like, in a living room uh, as, like, Suze is trying to watch, like, Millionaire Mashmaker or some, like, shitty reality show. And Cassie just, you know, trying to plead her case to them when, like, they're really not interested in, like, um, judging, her, judging her nor, like, give her an audience. You know, she talks about how, like, she isn't the wrong person. Maddie and Nate weren't together when her and Nate hooked up, blah, 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 blah. And even though they didn't want to take part in our conversation, they felt the need to reply to her, please. Um, Sue's saying, you know, yeah, like, stop acting like you're innocent. Like, this is like messed up what you did. Like, it's messed up what you did. You're not innocent and you need to own that. Nobody's going to hold it against you, but you need to own the fact. You can't act like you're all innocent, which is what she was trying to do like this entire episode. Uh, she kept on trying to rationalize her and Nate, you know, sneaking around and, you know, and talking with other fans of the show. I, I called it like insider trading dirty mocking because... If you think of it, her and Cassie, I mean, her and Cassie and Maddie are best friends. I'm pretty sure they had conversations with each other prior to this and after this, 
where Maddie probably made it clear, like, listen, I feel this way about, like, I'm 50-50 um, on either leaving Nate alone or getting back with him and possibly before they got back together, like, Cassie heard, you know, these conversations, probably gave her two cents, and then obviously after her and Nate hooked up, Cassie probably gave her two cents, but her two cents was more motivated and she had her own agenda because she wanted to be with Nate. So she was probably pushing the, oh, you guys shouldn't get back together. You shouldn't get back together. You should start dating other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I say it's like insider trading, dirty marketing. It's like you could influence the system to benefit you because of knowing information that you know suits your own agenda and then lexi responds to her by saying you fell in love with a person who's made fun of you your entire life which is very much true because we also have to remember that when mckay started a relationship with cassie back in the first season going back to the first episode he went into it with the best intentions and it was Nate who swayed him because he showed him a video of Cassie, I believe like flashing herself at a party or some kind of thing to basically uh, slut shame her and put into this, I put us put into McKay's head, this idea that she was a easy and she was loose and she was not somebody you could have a relationship with, which of course played out later on in the first season with McKay and Cassie and eventually led to the end of their relationship when, you know, prior to that, like McKay, like literally had feelings for Cassie and Cassie, Cassie literally have feelings for him and more and more outside influences, you know, people on, you know, McKay's college football team. And of course, Nate, who's supposed to be his best friend, which is another interesting thing, you know, that I hope is going to be explored either in this upcoming episode or the following episode is that, you know, we talk about Maddie and Cassie, Cassie is hooking up with her best friend's ex-boyfriend, but we, we haven't discussed Nate's hooking up with his best friend's ex-girlfriend. So I want to see how that plays out. But like I said, is to me, insider trade and dirty macking because after Nate had sex with Cassie, in the first episode, New Year's, before he gets his ass beat by Fez, he drunkenly, after having sex with Cassie in a bathroom, goes to McKay. And oddly enough, the premiere episode of this season with McKay and Nate kind of paralleled the premiere episode of the entire series in the first season, where Nate again actively goes to try to slut shame Cassie to McKay but this time he's far more aggressive because he's got this information like well he knows that he just 
like had sex with her and now he's motivated to try to do it again. So he is implanting into McKay's head the type of girl like Cassie is so that he could cause distance between McKay and Cassie and further uh, bring down the odds of McKay and Cassie um, reuniting. You know, he's bringing those odds down. So again, insider trading, dirty macking. We get some flexi time, which was like hinted. I actually seen it on, um, I believe, either Angus Clouds or um, Mod Apatow's Instagram post, like after the episode, which showed them like you know getting ready to shoot their scenes for this episode together. And I was like, oh, we're gonna get some flexi. So they, they hung out together, they watched a movie, which, um, you know, I kind of felt seen because, you know, back in college, you you know, that would be like your go-to um, date night, you know, to, you know, invite a girl over to, you know, your dorm room or your place and, you know, kick it and watch a movie and, you know, um, just hanging out that way. It was, you know, Netflix and chill before Netflix and chill. Uh, they watched the movie and and they they played Stand by Me by Sam Cook and um, <laughs> uh, Fesco just like sings his his heart out, which also was kind of um representative of like my college time. And I'm probably do a short story time about this at some point where, you know, me and my best friend at the time we were at Walmart and we were with you know some girls we were hanging out with. And while in like the checkout line, like we started singing um It'll Rain by um Bruno Mars, like in the middle of Walmart at like midnight. So I felt seen in that moment where he just started singing Stand By Me and just watching like, you know, these cute little scenes between Fez and, and Lexi, which is like this relationship everybody's rooting for. Um, which terrifies me knowing this show because I feel like the show knows how to snatch, you know, um, things you love away from you real quickly. It turns very dark. Maddie, uh, you know, in her babysitting gig, we get to see Minka Kelly's character, Samantha, who's the mother of the child that she's babysitting. Um, apparently, they have, like, this, this you know, um, relationship, you know, this friendship where it's kind of like... Um, you know, like a big, big sister, little sister type of relationship, I think. Because um, she comes home and she's like, let's take a swim. And they go to the pool, drink some wine. And uh, Maddie, you know, tells the whole story of her and Nate and Cassie. And it's interesting because uh, Samantha, Minka Kelly character, actually tells maddie she went through the same thing but she was the cassie in our situation and to me i feel like it opened maddie's eyes a little bit where it's just like at the end of the day like these this is high school so the people you're with now are probably not going to be the people uh you're in a relationship 10 years from now they're not going to be the same people your friends with 10 years from now and I, I think that was like her takeaway from her conversation in that 
because like Samantha tells her like did you want you know she asked her the questions like what happened to you when and um the guy oh yeah like you know he you know we forgot about each other and obviously the guy she married was not the guy that she's married to that she has the kid that Maddie um babysits and at the same time the girl and her never made up but her as a side you know as the side piece that Cassie was you know she's happy now without either of them so I think it'll be interesting to see I think like Maddie's takeaway was that yeah like you know life is gonna go on so why you know you shouldn't you know how harbor this anger towards these two people that probably you know years from now will you know be people you have to reach real deep in your memory banks to remember uh you know I talked about one of my criticisms this season was Kat's you know uh it's interesting like it kind of made she's kind of like a side character this season when she was a far more prominent character in the first season. But it seems that throughout the season, they've gone out of her way. They've gone out of their way to kind of like stick her into the forefront at moments. But in doing so, it just seems so out of place. Case in point, the scene with her and Ethan, where apparently they go to a restaurant and she's preparing to break up with him. But I think midway through trying to break up with him, she couldn't bring herself to do it. And she starts talking about how she has a brain disorder and she's essentially talks about gaslighting. But she talks about like Ethan gaslighting her because he recognizes that she was trying to break up with him and he calls her out on it. And then she says that she's gaslighting that he's gaslighting her but in reality like she's gaslighting him and it's apparent in the whole scene and you know Ethan takes the initiative and realizes like you're gonna break up with, with me anyway so I'm gonna do it for you like cool we're done da, 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 da. Um, but it's very out of place because it was the one scene in the whole episode with those two in it then we get some scenes with um, Nate at his house, which still has a pissy rug in its foyer. Um, I joked with, you know, other fans of the show saying like, wow, like the Jacob's household probably smells like an elevator in the projects right now, like with pee just like festering in it and not getting like cleaned up or, you know, them rolling up the rug and moving out of the house and burning it or some shit because it's just sitting there. You can see a big ass puddle of piss. But his mom obviously seems like she's taking, you know, his father walking out on them very well because I think she finally gets to live her truth. And she essentially has been, like, drinking all day, like, wine and, um, you know, cocktails and stuff like that. And, you know, even though Nate's probably, like, a minor, he's, you know, sitting there drinking with his mom too, like, no problem. And to me, I think it was the first time Nate seemed like a person, like an actual like human being, um, rather than this, you know, ominous, evil presence. Like he kind of reminds me of like Palpatine from Star Wars. Like he just 
is lurking and doing bad things the whole time. Like you didn't really get to see him like have like a personality. And you know, they talked about a lot of different things. And you know, it was the first time I think I think it's what most lines I think his mom has ever gotten. And I think Nate is in like a constant state of self preservation. I think like he does things essentially to survive and these things are good things and these things are bad things and the irony of like self the irony of like self-preservation is that to me is like a yin and a yang with Nate's character where he every good thing he does has to be either preceded by a bad thing or followed by a bad thing case in point in this episode he tries to retrieve the dvd of his father having sex with Jules from Maddie. And he does so by terrorizing her basically with a gun and threatening to either shoot her or shoot himself in her house where he like broke into. And um, he eventually gets it from her after like, as I said, terrorizing her. But what does he do? He takes it to the other person on the tape which is Jules. And, you know, he's also like, listen, like, I knew about this tape. I know about you being on the tape, but I could have gave it to the police. But I feel like it's best left to you to decide what you want to do with it. And um, the one thing that happened in this episode that gave me a laugh was when um, after giving the tape to Jules, she asked him, so what, are you a good person now? And he says, he laughs and he says, no, you don't even want to know what I did to get that, meaning the um, DVD. And I've seen somebody on, a, the, on Twitter, like, tweet out that Nate's probably the most self-aware character on that show. And, you know, I was discussing with another fan and, you know, she kind of felt like I was, you know, the fact that I agreed with that statement was complimentary towards him but i said to her i'm like self-aware means knowing who you are knowing how people perceive you and being aware of how people perceive you and i think nate throughout this show has proven that he is like very self-aware like he knows he's a shitty person and like i said for every good thing that he does it has to be either preceded followed or done in companion with something very bad and he's aware of that so that's why you know she he, she asked him are you a good person and he says no <laughs> you know and I, I think it's not uh, a question of whether or not like he he wants to be a good person and he just can't be or he wants to be a good person but chooses not to be um i think he just said it and just like, no, I am what I am. You know, it's all about perception. Some people see me as good, like his mom. And some people, you know, meet him in a car with a knife in her in their sleeves, like Jules. You know, some people um, are terrified by him, but love him, like Maddie. And some people just plain love him, like Cassie. So I think he's very self-aware in the way that he rubs people an interesting story um that rue brings up in a narration episode is that uh nate 
again, as part of his self-awareness, realizes that exposing his father as a pedophile might grant him everything that he wants, which is his father's business eventually. But at the same time, like your father being revealed as a pedophile, you know, will stick with the Jacobs, you know, real estate or contracting business or whatever it is that he does, construction, whatever. You know, it's going to be a negative state and staying and he's going to have to, um, the business might be worthless by the time he gets to it. If he releases it or if Maddie, the scorned girlfriend, re- releases it. So he realizes that if the victim on the tape releases that video in jewels, you know, he and his family could act ignorant to it and act just as surprised as anyone else but at the same time garner goodwill because you know um this horrible father and husband you know in contrast to this poor family that's been blindsided by what their you know husband and father actually is you know it might garner sentiment that keeps the business afloat so again like i said it's self-reservation with nate like he does things you know, to his own agenda. If it helps people, cool. If it hurts people, that's cool with him too. Then you have um, Fezzan Ashray, you know, after the very, like, cute moment with uh, Lexi, you see Faye, uh, played by porn star Chloe Cherry, uh, who's been staying with Ashray and Fez for the time being because, you know, she's trying to um, avoid arrest. She carries out the garbage, runs into her boyfriend, and her boyfriend basically admits to her that he's going to show up to Fez and Ashray's house with a wire and try to incriminate them uh, because he's cooperating with the police. So they're possibly going to be set up by Faye's boyfriend and what's going, what's the lasting mystery from this week? from the past week's episode to this week's episode will be whether or not Faye will disclose that information due to how close she might have gotten to um, Fez and Ashray or whether or not she sticks with her boyfriend. And it seems to us as the audience that she seems to have some kind of affinity towards uh, Fez and it seemed like she's a little bit jealous of Lexi and the, the fact that, you know, guys like Fez would usually go for a girl like Faye, like a girl like Faye. But instead, like Fez is going for, you know, basically this square, like goody two shoes chick. So it's going to be interesting on whether or not her loyalty to Fez and Ashray overpowers her jealousy towards Lexi and her loyalty to her boyfriend. Something also explored in this episode was Gia getting attention from Ali. You know, throughout the series, we've seen uh, Gia kind of as this um, very tragic character and the fact that, like, her sister gets, like, all this attention, uh, whether negatively or positively, because, you know, she's this drug addict. She's gone from drug addict to recovering drug addict to drug addict again to, again, recovering drug addict. And 
she kind of gets lost in a shuffle. And the interesting thing was part of Ali's uh, quote unquote, you know, somewhat of a demand, you know, in order for him to forgive Rue was that he would come over to their place and cook dinner for um, Rue and her family. And obviously it seems as if like the mom, you know, Leslie is smitten with Ali and possibly Ali's smitten with her too. You know, he shows up to the place and he basically ignores, you know, tells Rue to go about her business, you know, go to her room while he cooks and tells her mom to go to her room while they cook. And then he takes an interest to Gia and to to be honest, it was like the first time I think you actually seen those two characters on screen without Rue and actually having like dialogue with somebody else without the presence of Rue. And, you know, he basically reassures Gia, like, if you're mad, like, be mad. You shouldn't have to feel things just because you feel you're obligated to, if you're mad at Rue, you have every right to be mad at her. Like that's, you know, I guess essentially he was trying to say that's in a way being supportive because lying to somebody isn't support. Like letting, it probably be more helpful to Rue to let her know the devastation she has caused to you rather than, than to act like you're ignoring it. And I think that was like the root of conversation um and not like Ali was basically trying to say like you matter like your your life and your peace of mind matters too like don't act like it all has to be rule 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 and all Leslie 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 it should like Gia should matter as well but um one last thought on Nate before I move on is that all in all, I think in, you know, when they talk about him wanting his family's business and just, all, you know, his entire um, arc with Cal is that it seems like Nate wants the Jacobs without the Cal. And by that, I mean, by that, I mean, he wants everything that his father has built for him, but without his father in the picture. And I think that, again, motivates, that's something that motivates him. So that, that was like one of my takeaways, but the, the show, this episode, it wraps up. The last scene is really like poignant, which is Leslie calls a rehab facility to try to get a spot for, you know, Rue to go in as an inpatient. Um, and I guess essentially like the, the rehab facility would only um, allow her to come in and get a detox, which is, them basically draining like the drugs out of your system, draining your system, cleansing you, but the only it doesn't wash out your desire to do drugs. And it just ends with like Leslie just yelling into the phone, like pleading with them to take Rue, and they just flat out refuse to. So I think what we get from that is that Rue is basically on her own and her her recovery is in her heart in her hands on her hands alone and as much as Ali tries to help her as much as Gia and Leslie and Jules and possibly Elliot and all these different people as much as they will try to help her it's essentially in her hands on whether or not she wants to be clean and be a better person 
So we'll be looking out for episode seven. I believe it's a penultimate episode, second to you know the second to last episode of the season. We're going to see the play, which you know I've been talking up since you know it's been floated around in in the show that you know this play by Lexi is going to be done. So I I feel like this episode being um, that the play is going to be. Re- you know, a big ass mirror on the people on the audience, like it's gonna have a lot of fireworks. So I'm very interested. And we'll talk about it next week. All right, award of the week for episode 86 is gonna go to the NFL for still being on the wrong side of racism. Now, the NFL believes that. Uh, ending racism is, you know, symbolic gestures such as painting and racism on the end zones and, you know, singing, lift every voice and sing along with the national anthem and during the national anthem having people's arms hooked together um, to show quote unquote solidarity and, you know, bringing on somebody like Jay-Z to, you know, pay him to do things that to this day, I don't think we've seen any kind of um, fruit from. But in actual things that could be done to um, try to end racism, they've definitely kept on moving in a reverse pace that they've always been uh beginning with but not limited to the blackballing of Colin Kaepernick way back in um 2015 and 2016 but this past Sunday we had the Super Bowl such a great halftime show some say it's the best if not one of the best uh where we had Dr. Dre, Eminem, Snoop Dogg, Mary J. Blige and a special appearance by 50 Cent, which um a lot of people didn't think it was 50 Cent. It was actually bizarre from Eminem's group D12 uh, performing in the club. But as it was happening, a lot of people reported that the NFL uh, pulled out their funding for the actual show and Dr. Dre actually had to dig into his own pocket and use $7 million of his own to uh, produce this halftime show. Uh, and they also asked that Dr. Dre not perform the lyric in Still Dre, where he says, you know, he still doesn't F with police, but obviously in a clean version, you know, obviously because this is TV, uh, he says still not loving police. And then they told Eminem not to kneel while he performs uh, like Colin Kaepernick, which he kind of faked out because he didn't kneel when he performed. But uh, during a little interlude where uh, Dr. Dre played um, Aim Out at You, a little tribute to the late and great Tupac Shakur, uh, Eminem kneeled. And the interesting thing about this is a lot of like conservatives and right-wing people had a problem with it, which highlights what we all knew, which is it has nothing to do with the anthem because last I checked, 
I ain't mad at you ain't the national anthem. And when players were kneeling and people had a problem with the kneeling, people said it was disrespectful to the national anthem and it was disrespectful to people in the uniform and disrespectful to the country in general. So clearly it didn't have anything to do with the kneeling. But the second thing that's being highlighted this week with the NFL, you know, not being as progressive and um forward thinking when it comes to matters of race is, you know, something I've been talking about seemingly for the past like three or four weeks, which is that the uh head coaching position, you know, obviously the NFL has this suit brought upon them by um Brian Flores which sadly enough they hired former um attorney general Loretta Lynch to defend them uh, you know against Brian Flores and his um you know his civil suit uh class action suit they hired this black woman to defend them which is interesting because NFL teams are doing a poor job in hiring African American coaches because every single head coaching position has been filled by a white person with the exception of the Houston Texans, which Lovey Smith, congratulations to him. This is no knock on Lovey Smith. You know, I support him totally. And he, to me, is one of my favorite head coaches, you know. Um, but the thing about Lovey Smith is he has coached in Tampa and is coached in Chicago already. So hiring him, um, essentially the one black coach that they did hire had to have some kind of track record behind him before he was hired. Whereas a lot of these white head coaches that are being hired for the first time, a lot of them are, you know, former uh, coordinators or assistants um, and not opportunities not being afforded to the other um you know, coordinators and assistant coaches of color. And the other exception is the Miami Dolphins, which hired Mike McDaniels, who, when I first saw his picture as he was hired, they, you know, in the headlines, it said that Miami would be receiving compensation. Miami would be receiving compensation for this hire, um, Miami and San Francisco would be receiving compensation for this hire because it's a minority hire. And then when you look at a picture of him and he's like, how? You come to find out that he's actually biracial. His father uh, is African-American and his mother is white. But on the surface, if you look at him, like he looks like a white guy. And then in his introductory press conference, he stated that he's been classified as biracial uh, and the really disappointing part of his statement was that even though he's been classified as biracial and mixed and different things, he classifies himself as a human being, uh, which as an African-American, um, and I think to a lot of African-Americans who who've seen these head coach and hires um that's disheartening to somebody taking you know basically such a uh cop out of a response to 
um, how they classify as race in a time where literally I feel like this has been like the most NFL head coaching openings ever and every single one of them have been filled virtually every one of them have been filled by a white guy with the exception of these two I'm discussing at the moment you know at a time like this to respond to a question about race by saying yeah you know I classify myself as human you know I don't think that does you any favors in you know people looking in and saying that you know this um was a comfort hire like you were hired because you know to the NFL owners and Stephen Ross you on the surface look and act white until probably pressed about your race till somebody sees you know members of your father's side of family and say oh I didn't know you were black but at the same time on the other side of the coin they could say oh yeah we did hire a black guy because look look at the people in his family um so it's just disheartening that the NFL is just continuing um just this mode of just being in reverse as far as race relation goes and you know not affording you know the same opportunities they're given to uh white people in football that they're that they should also be given to people of color so award a week again a negative award week is going to the nfl for you know still being on the wrong side of racism and that right there is award a week Final thoughts for this week. Uh, Ivan Reitman, uh, you know, I like, as I said, to give people their flowers while they're still here. You know, we shouldn't, you know, celebrate people just because, you know, they're gone. Um, You know, every week, every Halloween, you know, Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 uh, comes on TV. Uh, Stripes is constantly on animal house celebrated all the time uh space jam obviously means a lot to a lot of people so much so that the second movie which he also executive produced you know people including myself were felt that a second movie wasn't um really necessary because the first one was so great So all of this, you know, stuff could have been said while he was still here. And a lot of people who've been watching and, um, you know, digesting these stuff over the years could have possibly been more celebratory of Ivan Reitman. And, you know, again, just like John Hughes, he's somebody, um, John Hughes and Richard Donner, where they're not household names like a Steven Spielberg or George Lucas. You know, these people could you know be celebrated in the same facet because they've made such awesome films throughout their whole careers um euphoria like i said such an interesting episode every week is just amazing because i think you leave one episode going into the next episode like what could they possibly do and you watch the episode and it's you know, things you never even thought they could do. And it's very interesting. And it's a shame, like, you know, there's some people that don't watch the show and are really, like, upset at the fact that a lot of people do love this show. And I think if you legitimately gave it a chance and actually took took an interest in it, like, you'd be fascinated by this show as well. You know, a lot of people say it's glorifying, like, drug culture and um, 
teens using drugs and I think if you watch that show as a teen and then you say like you want to be like Rue that's very peculiar because Rue is quite the cautionary tale on why um, uh, you shouldn't abuse drugs you know and such so brilliantly played by Zendaya and you know not only her Sydney Sweeney Alexa Demi Barbie Ferreira uh, Maude Apatow, Angus Cloud, uh, I think Jacob Alordi, the guy that plays Nate. Like these, these, these people are like hunted shade for everybody on our show. Is just like really talented. Um, and it's just interesting. A person like Angus Cloud, he probably wasn't. I, I've heard he wasn't even trying to be an actor. And I mean, if you watch the show, like you'd probably say like, all right, like you know, you can't make this dude out to be like Lawrence Olivier, but for the role that he's playing, he's playing it excellently. So, you know, shout out to to the entire cast and Sam Levinson for, you know, putting this whole thing together. Colin Domingo, um, uh, Storm Reed. It's a great cast. So we'll keep watching and it's, it's just awesome. Um, but Award of the Week, we just put out the last two that we hadn't put out before. Um, so check those out. Just dropped a new show reviews of Brews. Um, we're really gonna start trying to get our YouTube back into rotation. But thanks to everybody who's been consistently listening. Thanks to people who've um just started listening. But yeah, uh, this has been episode eighty six of Shug Me the Mooney. Shug Me the Mooney. Shug Me the Mooney. <laughs>